Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 32, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, this is Jesus. It's going to be a parable about the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is growing, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, foolishness. With the help of the Holy Ghost, I want to preach to you for a few moments on this subject. Divine disruption. Divine disruption. Jesus, I love you. And you are here, God, interrupting, God, our hearts and our lives and our situations already with your power. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would move on every person in this room. God, I pray that you would illuminate your words so that we could trust and believe what you are about to do, God, in this house. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen. amen. You may be seated. Uh, this is really an incredible time to be alive. Um, we are living in an incredible age of uh, technological and industry disruption and change and progression. And if you're not familiar with the term, a disruptor is a person or a business who challenges your preconceived ideas of how things should be done in that industry and, or with that technology. And they show us that there's a different way to live, often a more efficient and a more better way to live, another way to accomplish a task and get stuff done. And whether you love them or hate them, there is no probably greater example than this uh, or of this than the corporation known as Tesla. Um, they're disrupting multiple industries. Number one, they're disrupting the car industry. Uh, with the price of the battery that they're able to produce. Um, they are online direct sales. Uh, they have incredible technology in their vehicles at a price point that usually you've got to pay double or triple four to get in a luxury car. And not only that, they've got how batteries are made and produced at their Gigatron factory. And then there's the Tesla Home Pack, which takes your house off the grid, and uh, if you live in Ontario like me, um, you have extremely high hydro rates, and that means that you often do your laundry in the middle of the night because the peak periods are triple or four times the amount of electricity that you pay at night. And so you got to like you know bath your kid and warm. If you're going to use warm water, if you're going to use cold water, you can just toss them in whenever. But uh, but if you're going to use hot water or you're going to use your dryer, you know, like a civilized person, and you got to do all of that in the middle of the night. So I'm looking at this Tesla home pack like this. It's going to take up a lot of room in the garage, but this is a cool, it's a cool idea. And they've got including a roofing company where they're able to embed solar panels into the shingles of the roof at a cost lower than a traditional roof. They are disrupting all sorts of industries as a company. And while the way it's always been done or the way culture has viewed it or views it, it's clearly thought of by the disruptor. It is not given the weight of power or authority the rest of us give to it. Disruptors often make us shake our heads asking, why didn't someone think of this before? Right? We've all had that app that we've downloaded that's impacted our life or some new thing that we've got. And we're like, this company's worth that amount of money? I, if I would have only thought of this earlier, we would be set for the rest of our life. They often do something that leaves a shake in our head 
going, man, I, I wish I would have thought of this. This is so easy. This is so simple. But often the major players in that industry, the ones that have been disrupted, are left in the dust. Their companies are in shambles. They're in financial ruins. Their corporate structure collapses because they refuse to see anything other than the culture that they knew and the world that they had built from themselves. And in modern business, there is no more evident tragedy of a missed opportunity than the collapse of the Kodak Corporation. At its heyday, Eastman Kodak was huge and employed 140,000 workers at its height. And in 1996, it was ranked the fourth most valuable brand in the United States behind only Disney, Coca-Cola, and McDonald's. See, back in the day, when people would take pictures, they would put them on film. All of you young people have probably never seen this before. You can Google it later. It's fascinating. It really is. Pictures did not go into some strange digital universe, but they were physical, tangible objects that you could hold with your hand. I know, this is boom, blowing your mind. Um, and uh, it was, when you would, when you would put film... Uh, the strange thing that would you know take put the picture on it would it would be Kodak. You could buy Fujifilm. You could use another company, but Kodak had ninety percent of the film market. They were winning the marketing game. Even the word Kodak moment has made its way into our vernacular. Kodak moment meaning an opportunity to be relished like one would a fine picture developed on nice Kodak film. Right? But in 2012, Kodak filed for bankruptcy. And here's the tragic thing. Here is the sad fact in the story of the Kodak Corporation. Kodak invented the digital camera. They created the technology. They invented the device, but they shelved it. They tucked it away. They pretended it didn't exist. They followed predictably the pattern of those who miss out on brand new opportunities. First, they denied. I mean, who wants to put their picture on the internet, right? Who would be so crazy as to hold a camera device out towards your face, take a picture of your face, and then upload you know, the, that face picture, selfie, right, up online. No one would want to look at that. No one would you know, want to put their pictures on a Facebook or a MySpace or an Everyone's Apostolic. They didn't want to threaten their film business, which accounted for over 70% of their margins. They made fun of digital technology. They laughed off people like Sony. They said social sites and, tech and digital technology will never replace the treasure of a printed picture that we'll put in our photo books and slide under the couch. They discounted 20-something investors you know, that we're inventing in mom's basement or dad's garage. And they laughed off these tiny little companies because disruptors often start painfully small. Then the iPhone came out and four years later, Kodak was crushed. Kodak lost out on the digital camera revolution because they discounted the disruption. It was right there in front of them. They actually invented the technology. They had the means. They had the money. They had the structure. They had the market. But they held on to what they knew and what they had built. And never once did they consider that there was more that their company could be. 
In our first passage of scripture that we read together, Jesus is describing the kingdom of God. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. When it is growing, it is greater. But when it is growing, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Both in the ancient Jewish and Greco-Roman world, they were very familiar with mustard seeds. And mustard seeds were known for their extremely small size. They were only one millimeter in diameter, and I do not know what that is in American, but you have a picture right there. You can take a look. That is very, very small. 760 seeds only make up one-fifth of a teaspoon. It is very, very, very small. Now the seed in question is also thought to be one of these tiny seeds. It was known as the black mustard seed. And when it would plant, it would grow to over 10 feet in just 10 days. But Jesus in this parable is not describing the kingdom as a 10 foot tall plant that grows from a tiny seed. He uses superlative. He uses exaggeration. And he said this tiny seed becomes so abnormally, supernaturally large that birds of the air can come and nest in its branches. This parable is a parable to announce the kingdom of God. The world as it could be if people would just make Jesus their king. He's saying this kingdom is already here. And it's already working. And it's already being unfolded. But don't miss out on it because you discount its humble beginnings or its outlandish claims. See, the purpose of this parable was to address the doubts of Jesus' contemporaries who thought that Jesus was just too smart and to it's insignificant to be talking as big as he was. See, Jesus is walking around and saying, I'm the king of a kingdom, and this kingdom is the kingdom of God, and this kingdom will fill the whole earth. And when people get in this kingdom, they'll be healed. When people get in this kingdom, they'll be restored. They'll be redeemed. They'll be made whole. And they said, how could you be the king of anything? You're from Nazareth. Your daddy's Joseph. Your folks are poor. How can any good thing come out of Nazareth, let alone a king? But Jesus is saying through this parable... No one should be put off by what appears to be unimpressive and very small because like the tiny mustard seed which grows into a huge plant so the kingdom of God is present even when it is unnoticed, ignored or scorned by the world. But if you let what is planted grow, it will grow and invade the earth. So he says, don't discount me. Don't discount these 12 ignorant and unlearned men. Don't dismiss the humble beginnings of my state born Nazareth raised life because what I am planting is beginning to grow and they shook their heads still and they scorned and mocked still but the crowds grew and then the deaf were healed the blind eyes were opened the crippled limbs restored and the dead came out of the grave and all the while Jesus is saying I'm just getting started I'm just getting started this is only the beginning Blessed be the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they took Jesus and they nailed him to a cross after they had whipped and beat him mercilessly. 
They hung him there and he cried. It was finished and he died. And the devil thought that he had won. But how many know that three days later, a big old angel rolled that stone out from in front of the grave and out arose Jesus alive forevermore. And then he ascends into heaven and he pours out his spirit in Acts chapter 2. And in one day over 3,000 people are filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Because Jesus and His kingdom was a disruption. It was a disruptor to the world. It turned upside down everything that everyone thought about God. But now the church is born. And Jesus says to His disciples, Greater things than these shall ye do. And greater things they did. As the church spread and disrupted everywhere they went to the point that in Acts 17, it says, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city. Catch this. Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. What a change in just a couple short years. They went you from you are too small to be talking so big to you are the greatest threat to the Roman Empire that we have ever seen. You have turned the world upside down because what started small and what was scorned by the world became the biggest spiritual disruption in the history of humanity. And I'm here to preach to Atlanta West this morning that Jesus and His kingdom still is a disruption to every other kingdom that is on this earth. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Hear me. The move of the Holy Ghost. The experience of conversion. The lifestyle of a disciple of Jesus. This is a disruptor to the way our culture thinks and views about how people know God. It would be a colossal error for anyone in this room to ignore the divine disruption of the kingdom of Jesus that is in this world and frankly in this room right now to underestimate the possibilities of the kingdom of heaven because it looks too small or seems too insignificant would be the greatest mistake of your life because do not underestimate what God can do through you. In fact, if you don't want God to change your life, you better run as far away as you can from Atlanta West Pentecostal Church because if you stay here too long, the Holy Ghost is going to get a hold of you. Jesus is going to grab a hold of you. The Word of God is going to change you. Blessed be the name of the Lord Jesus. When Jesus gets a hold of you, He'll change everything about your life. He'll change what you love. He'll change what you hate. He'll change how you view right and wrong. He'll give you a purpose. He'll anoint you. He'll empower you. He'll take fishermen and make them apostles. He'll take tax collectors and make them authors of Scripture. He'll take people like my mom who grew up so poor that she had no running water in her house where she had coats for blankets and her dad spent time in prison for a horrible crime and he'll turn her into a pastor's wife who's been in children's ministry for 40 years. He'll take my dad who was an alcoholic and a regular drug user and completely broken by life and insecurity and turn him into a church planter, a pastor, a youth president, and a presbyter because this is the kind of disruption that the kingdom of God can bring into your life. 
So don't you dare say, I'm only small. I'm only from a broken home. I'm just poor. I've just got too many mistakes in my life. I've fallen too many. You better not say that anymore. Because when Jesus gets a hold of you, it doesn't matter what's happened. It doesn't matter what failures have been in your life. Jesus will disrupt. Turn your life around. Hallelujah. To every new believer in the room, don't write off. Don't look around at all these great church people. Think you can never measure up. Don't look around and, and think maybe that you're somehow too, too broken or too frail or too small to measure up to the giants of faith that may be in your church. Because if you give what's been planted by the kingdom of Jesus in your life, if you give it time to grow... If you give it time to grow, don't underestimate what God can do here. You know, when Jesus came into the world, though, and you would think that there were two cultures that would have embraced him wholeheartedly. If anyone would have bought into Jesus, it would have been two cultures or two groups of people. It would have been the Jews and it would have been the Greeks. The Jews were Jesus' own people. They wrote the, you know, the Bible. Had that really, you know, big thing working for them. The Greeks had been so heavily influenced by Jewish culture. Even Alexander the Great, when he was, you know, tearing apart the world and building an empire for himself, he came to the gates of Jerusalem. And the high priest opened up the doors and held in his hands a scroll of Daniel and sat Alexander the Great down and said, Here is what Daniel prophesied hundreds of years earlier about you and what you would do. You are part... You are part of God's prophetic plan for His people and, 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 for, and for the world. And Alexander the Great was so overcome that he sat down on that rock and he read the entire book of Daniel and a bunch of other prophets. And he circumnavigated Jerusalem and gave great favor to the Jewish faith and the Jewish religion. And synagogues popped up all over the Greek empire. In fact, Hellenism, the dominant Greek philosophy, was influenced heavily by Jewish theology. It was the melding of Greek philosophy and Jewish theology. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block. And to the Greeks foolishness. The preaching of the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. Catch this. And it was dumb to the Greeks. And this makes no sense. Boggles our minds. Unless, of course, we live in a world where the world's largest photography company can ignore the change blowing in the wind and be left in the dust by a cell phone. For the Jews, Jesus was a stumbling block because while they believed that God was transcendent, that means really big, and imminent, that able to come close, they believed that God was really big, He was all-powerful, but He still would interact with human beings in the world. They believed that God could intervene in the world. They believed in an all-powerful God that, that could come and change people's lives. 
But it never dawned on them at this point in history that God would come so close as to become a human being and move into the neighborhood of the human race. (laughs) God's just not going to do that. And they wrote the Bible. This appearance was their opportunity. It was their Kodak moment. But instead it became a Kodak moment of a different sort as the religion that prophesied Jesus missed their Messiah because he was too much of a disruption and didn't fit into their little box. The problem the Jews had with Paul was that he said God had come in a way they had not expected. But it was folly and foolishness to the Greeks because while they believed in a really big, omnipotent, all-powerful God, they didn't believe that God would ever come close to anybody. They said God was real, God was one, God was super big, but He was completely uninterested in people. It was outside of their view that God would love people so much that He would actually reveal Himself to them. The best shot we had at knowing God was through Greek philosophy. That if we reason enough and we think hard enough that maybe we can catch a glimpse of God. But God would never dare corrupt Himself with the corruption of human flesh. So to them, the incarnation was a joke. And the two groups of people that should have jumped on board to the greatest spiritual and religious disruption, the greatest experience the world had ever seen, missed it. They missed out on Jesus because He did not come as they had expected. So what are you missing out on? What are you missing out on? Right? I know this this may come across as being blunt or direct, But I've made up my mind that I don't want to miss out on a thing that God has for me. Simply because it didn't fit into my life as I had artfully planned it to be. I don't want to miss out on the power, on the purpose, the demonstration, the miracles. Because I was too busy trying to fit God through my sin, my flesh, or through my cultural filter. I don't want to miss out having my life changed at an altar. Because I was too worried that I would cry too hard. Or people may think I'm too emotional because I've never prayed that way before. I don't want to miss out on God moving in my family. I don't want to miss out on God filling my son with the Holy Ghost in his bedroom and night because I was too busy working or too busy trying to queue up the next show on Netflix so I could have a moment to myself that I was too tired and too distracted not to make my way to his little room and kneel by his bed and talk to him about Jesus to not come to the altar and receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost because it would disrupt your life too much makes as much sense as Kodak inventing the digital camera Putting it on the shelf. Because that new experience and that new life would disrupt their business and their way of being too much. But I don't believe we got people in this room like that this morning. I believe there are all kinds of people you came to church today and your prayer was Jesus whatever you want to do do it Uh, Jesus whatever you want to say say it Uh, God whatever you want to perform God I give you permission to perform it Uh, I don't care how much it shakes up my life Uh, Jesus I just want you Uh, Lord whatever I've got to give up I'm going to give up Uh, no matter how much I've got to pray no matter how much I've got to fast uh, no matter what I've got to discipline uh, Jesus don't let me miss uh, my 
by divine disruption in my life or in my church. I want to be like blind Bartimaeus and cry out even when other people think it's inappropriate. Jesus, have mercy on me. I want to have the heart of the woman with the issue of blood that says, if I got to crawl my way to the altar because I'm so weak, Lord, I will not miss my moment with you, Jesus. I know I'm preaching to some people here today. You've already made up your mind, God, if I'm going to walk a rut into my living room floor till I see you save my kids, till I see you move in my family and my marriage, no matter what, I am going to get my visitation. I want everything that God has for me. I want to see Jesus. I want to see that kingdom of God in my life. I want to see that kingdom so big it fills the earth. I want to see that kingdom that brings revival. I want that kingdom that heals cancer. I want that kingdom that heals broken hearts. I want that kingdom that restores people that have made colossal mistakes. I want that kingdom to fill my church and my student ministry and change my city. I want to be part of it. Hallelujah. This message... It's not something I threw together because it wouldn't be a great sermon. It has been born of an experience that my wife and I have been walking through. A couple of months ago, I was praying and we had some really bad stuff happen in our lives. I was praying, God, it was a broken prayer. I was, I was downstairs, I was kneeling by my couch and I was saying, God, just let the bad stuff stop. God, I don't think I can take any more. God, don't let us have to go through anything else. God, I feel like my faith and my mind and God, my mental, emotional health, Lord, I'm, I'm hanging on that razor's edge. If anything else comes and drops on my life, God, I think I'm going to crumble. I can't take any more. See, my son, he's three and a half years old. When he was born, he had a severely deformed club foot. We had to have surgery, which was fine, but then he received two bad prescriptions and we're thankful that the Lord spoke to the nurse and she caught it. And then the second time, the second time the Holy Ghost talked to my wife, even though she had been up for 24 hours with a baby in agony that had just had surgery. And God stopped her hand before both of those, uh, both of those prescriptions would have given my son around 10 or 20 times the amount of morphine that his little body should have had. It would have been lethal within minutes. But he had two bad prescriptions. He has anaphylactic allergies. And, and for both summers that we were at camp, he had two life-threatening reactions because of cross-contamination in restaurants. And we were 45 minutes away from the nearest hospital. And we were driving like 80 or 90 miles an hour on 30-mile-an-hour roads trying to get our baby to the hospital because we were so afraid that this allergy and this reaction could take his life. In February... In February this past, this past year in 2016, my wife's thyroid shut down. And, and in June, she was, uh, or April, sorry, she was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, in June, she had a radical surgery. It changed her whole life. All of our plans. Everything that we wanted. It was gone. And... Uh, I felt, I guess, punch drunk is the word. I felt like I had been hit so many times. In three years, I was filled with stress. 
And I was down there bawling my eyes out in my basement, saying, God, just let the bad stuff stop. And God disrupted my worried prayer. And you would have thought he would have been really nice. Give me a big old hug and be like, the comforter has come, right? But he didn't. Kind of like, give me a shot. I'm crying out, Lord, just let the bad things stop. God, just, I can't take anything else. I can't take another bad report. I can't take another reaction. And God jumped in and disrupted my worried prayer and said, is that all I can do? Is that the best that you can hope for from my power and my glory? Is disaster aversion the most that my child could ever ask for from my kingdom? Am I not a creator? Can I not restore all that has been lost? God sent two people into our lives within 24 hours of each other. And each of them came with the same message. They had not conversed with one another, but they came with a word from the Lord and they cried. They didn't know the extent of my wife's illness, but they sat across from our kitchen table and they said, God can do more. God is going to do more for you. You just believe Him. You believe for more. I feel the Holy Ghost in this room. Late October. Late October, someone spoke a prophetic word over my life and said, this is not over. But in it, the glory of God will be revealed. She went to the doctor in November with a sore throat. Ended up with an ultrasound that indicated that on the right and left side of her thyroid were two aggressive lesions. We are facing the possible diagnosis, the probable and very strong diagnosis of a second cancer, thyroid cancer. So we started praying, but our mind had already shifted. You ask us when we got hit again, were we afraid? No, not at all. Yes, I've had some low moments. Yes, my heart's been broken. And yes, I've cried. But that fearfulness, that anxiety, we had a whole other prayer. And that prayer was, God, don't just stop the spread, but dry up, God, the cancer that is there. And let there, oh God, let there be doctors that are freaked out. They scheduled my wife for a CT scan. They scheduled a for a CT scan and they said, we just, we are worried that the cancer has spread to other lymph nodes and other organs. The ultrasound is not able to see through bone and reveal it. We are going to scan the entire upper half of your body. And that, uh, that CAT scan or that story, that CT scan came back about a week ago and we, we found out that there is no spread of that cancer whatsoever. Now on March the 7th, 
We're going for a biopsy because that CT scan, the doctors are debating back and forth over what they saw in my wife's thyroid. They're going back and forth disagreeing with each other. And so we got a little bit of a punch in the gut as far as that was concerned. But we were believing for God. And so on March the 7th, they're going to conclude once and for all if those lesions are still in my wife's body. But our prayer is still the same. Lord God, let them do whatever they got to do. Lord, let them poke whatever they got to poke. But at the end of the day, God, we believe those lesions are going to disappear in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. I've made up my mind. You may be saying, well, what if... What if she doesn't get healed? What if she's got to go through surgery? I've made up my mind. If God's got a different plan for my life, I am willing and able to receive it. But I've made up my mind that if I don't get something from God, it won't be because I haven't had the faith and the guts and the courage to pray in the name of Jesus. I believe that there are some people in this room. I'm getting ready to close in just a moment. That you have been praying the same prayer that I prayed. God, just let the bad stuff stop. And God sent me all the way from Ontario to ask you a blunt little question. Is that all he can do? Is that the most that you can hope for? Or do you serve a God that can disrupt? Maybe you came in with a prayer. Maybe you came in with a prayer and it was, God, just get my child, just get my parent, just get my friend off drugs. And God's saying, is that all I can do? Because I'm going to do more than break addiction. I'm going to save them. I'm going to restore them. And I'm going to make them a pillar of faith in the church. Maybe you're coming here today and you're saying, God, just help me survive this season. And God's saying, I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to make you a city on a hill. I'm going to use your trouble as a test of the power of my name maybe you have fallen maybe you have fallen and you've made a mistake maybe you fell flat on your face huh. and you're saying God can you just forgive me and God's saying I can't do more than that not only will I wash you with my blood but I will restore you to your previous status and I will help you use your failure as a story of my grace and my blood. I'm here to declare over somebody you may have already had the divorce papers filled out and maybe this is your last ditch service. And you're saying, God, God, I'm going to give you one more shot. Just help my family not to fall apart. I've got a word from the Lord for somebody here today. If you will submit to the plan of God, if you will submit to the word, God will not only stop the dissolution of your family, but he'll help you and your spouse fall in love with each other again. I also feel in the Holy Ghost that there may be somebody here. You've been battling mental illness. You've been battling whether it's anxiety or depression or bipolar disorder. You've got some sort of mental illness and you got a stronghold in your mind that says God can heal all sorts of diseases but God can't do much about the mind I want to let you know as somebody who went for two years having major panic attacks up to three times a day that Jesus Christ can heal your mind as much as he can heal your body you just gotta let him disrupt your life
what outlandish thoughts, I'm going to close with this. What outlandish thoughts run through your head in prayer or in this service today that you call foolish? You have been tripping over, stumbling over, because it defies the little box that you have forced your master to live in. My question is, what if those thoughts aren't your thoughts? What if those crazy outlandish ideas of miracles in your home, salvation in your family, provision for your life and for your children, how God wants to call you and use you despite the failures you've made in your life. What if those thoughts aren't your thoughts? But what if those thoughts are the little green shoots of a mustard-sized kingdom trying to grow up through the dirt and the mud in your life? Atlanta West Pentecostal Church, this altar call is your moment of divine disruption. And I'm not going to do anything further but invite you to stand all over this room and I want you to bring your drama I want you to bring your sickness I want you to bring your hang ups I want you to bring your failures to this altar because Jesus is going to meet you here let's lift your hands right now Jesus is going to meet you here Jesus is going to meet you here that's it no more fear no more doubt just faith in Jesus that's it lift your hands right now that's it come and come all the way to the front aren't you tired of being afraid aren't you tired of hearing how God's a healer but not seeing any healing aren't you tired of your kids being lost teenager aren't you tired of being the only one in your family serving God God is going to reach people today God is going to move in lives today in the name of Jesus Come on, let's lift your voice, lift your voice, lift your voice, and press into his presence.